From Washington, this is the CQ Budget Podcast, your leading Capitol Hill source on how Congress allocates federal taxpayer dollars. I'm David Lerman, your budget tracker. My co-host, Jennifer Schutt, is on assignment today, but I'm fortunate to have with me Paul Krawczak, a senior budget reporter at CQ Roll Call, who knows everything there is to know about budget law. Thanks for being here again, Paul. Well, not even close on that, but thanks very much for inviting me. Good to have you back. So the impeachment trial is over, and that means uh, Congress can focus now entirely, really, on the COVID-19 relief package. And that is what we're seeing uh, intensify. Uh, last week, Democrats from uh, House Democrats, nine committees, pushed through their pieces of the $1.9 trillion aid package through all the various committees under this budget reconciliation process. And this week, we're going to see a lot of those pieces get assembled uh, and then push it to the House floor, we think, next week when Congress reconvenes. So how is that process taking shape, Paul? How do you think that's playing out? Well, we expect the House Budget Committee to uh, meet sometime this week. We're not sure when and um, take these nine sets of reconciliation recommendations from these nine committees and assemble those uh, into a bill. Um, we expect that to happen sometime this week. And then um, at some point it goes to the Rules Committee and the Rules Committee uh, writes a rule um, and uh, has some kind of an amendment. Um, and then, as you said, it would go to the House floor next week. Okay, so we will see it, I think, take shape. And, and, and I know all the committees are getting all their briefings on what's in this thing, which we've outlined before. I think the, the outlines of this are pretty clear, and it basically follows President Biden's framework for a relief package with some tweaks that Democrats have, have uh, inserted in here. Um, and then the Senate is opting for a more streamlined process, right? Because we don't think their committees are going to take it up at all. It's going to go right to the floor. Right. Um, typically with reconciliation, um, the, the Senate authorizing committees would write the reconciliation recommendations of the legislation and report that to the Senate Budget Committee. Uh, but we do not expect the uh, Senate committees to mark up. We expect instead for there to be a uh, Senate substitute amendment um, that would be um, similar to the House budget resolution, uh, but would differ in some way. And of course, all through this process now, Republicans have expressed some bitter opposition. Uh, these committees have advanced the, their pieces of the bill uh, through party line votes pretty strictly. Um, Republicans have been protesting that they've been locked out of the process and that their amendments wouldn't be considered. They've had no input. Democrats did, did pretty much just blow past them, right, and just swat down all the Republican amendments. This is clearly a Democrat-crafted and uh, bill that's going to be passed only by Democrats is what it looks like. That's right. And if I could just correct something I think I said, um, I think I said House budget resolution. Uh, what you will actually have is you will have a House reconciliation bill 
and you'll have a sentiment reconciliation bill. Uh, but to go back to your question, yes, it's it's an extremely partisan process. Um, and in recent years, it has been a very partisan process um, because it, it can be a partisan process. Uh, with reconciliation, you only need a simple majority, uh, 51 votes in the Senate to pass it. So if Democrats control the House and the Senate um, and the White House, uh, they can they can pass it without any Republican support. Uh, the other thing about amendments, um, which has been mentioned by by Democratic chairs, is that another reason that they have resisted amendments is because there are very strict rules that control what can go in reconciliation bills, and they want to make sure that they follow those rules. Um, so Democrats have said that, but th that's not the main reason. The main reason is Democrats know what they want to pass and they can pass it without Republican support. Yeah. Uh, and that is, that is the benefit of the reconciliation process. If you want to muscle something through on party line votes, you can do that. Republicans did that with their tax cuts in 2017 and Democrats are doing it now with COVID relief. Um, although it really does make you wonder, Paul, um, you know, for a new president coming in who talked about bipartisanship, if they can't even pass emergency relief for a pandemic in a bipartisan way, boy, it makes me wonder, can they really do anything in a bipartisan way now? Um, I mean, that, this sets a tone here. It seems to me that it's going to be really hard, you know, this part of partisan tensions have been at a boil already with the impeachment. It just seems really hard now to imagine much bipartisanship happening um, if you can't do emergency relief that way. And, and the past uh, the past COVID bills had been done in a bipartisan way, and now this one is not. So it seems to me it bodes pretty ill for, for uh, much bipartisan legislation in coming months. Well, I think they, they could have passed a bipartisan bill um, outside of the reconciliation process through the through regular order. They could have done that. Um, Republicans said they wanted to do that. Uh, Republicans in the Senate uh, rallied around basically a $600 billion bill, right. um, a lot less than this almost $2 trillion package. And perhaps they could have compromised somewhere in the neighborhood I don't know, maybe they could have gotten up to a trillion dollars or so, who knows. But it, Democrats really had no interest in that. I mean, if Republicans had had gone along with the $2 trillion price tag, maybe they, they could have worked something out. But Republicans wanted a, a much more limited target, targeted COVID relief bill. Uh, it, Democrats wanted a much more expansive bill, and this is that much more expansive bill. Uh, this has provisions which arguably are not related to COVID, like raising the minimum wage, doubling the minimum wage. Now, Democrats will say, yes, this is related, but, but it's not directly related. Uh, bottom line is there are a lot of things that Democrats want to do that they've put into this bill that Republicans would not support. 
Um, in terms of your point about bipartisanship, yes, it's 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 going to be it's going to be tough to get bipartisan bills passed through regular order after this. I would think so. Um, that's probably a subject for another day. But but um, my takeaway is don't look for much bipartisanship now because. I, I do think this sort of sets the tone. There is still hope, I guess, of an infrastructure package being bipartisan. That seems to be the one place where both parties have an interest in pushing something fairly big. Um, but even there, I don't know. There's always been a debate about how to pay for that, and and there won't be much willingness to agree on that, I don't think. So we'll see what happens on that. that that's that's for another day. But um this 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 could be the price of passing quickly a two trillion dollar package on a party line vote. We should point out, uh, and already uh, uh, just over the last few days, uh, all of the ranking Republicans on all the Senate committees that have jurisdiction over this over this relief package wrote a letter to Senate leaders uh, protesting this move to bypass the committees entirely in the Senate. Um, saying that it's devoid of any shred of meaningful bipartisanship, they wrote in their letter. Uh, so you know they're unhappy, so it's all going to be party line now, and it's going to get pretty ugly. It does seem like they'll push it to passage on, on a party line vote, but even there, there are risks, and you mentioned the minimum wage. We should say, Paul, that is probably, I think, the biggest partisan flashpoint now is whether to, to more than double the federal minimum wage and whether it can survive these reconciliation rules in the Senate. Um, we know this, this so-called bird rule that says nothing in reconciliation can be passed that doesn't directly affect federal spending and taxes. There was a real question of whether raising the federal minimum wage does that. And even if it does, Paul, you've got Democrats like Joe Manchin, the conservative from West Virginia, who isn't happy about raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour. He says it should only be about $11, at least for his state, where the cost of living is lower in West Virginia. Um, it's, you know, Biden has already thrown in the towel and said he doesn't expect the minimum wage to survive in this package under reconciliation. So we're going to see some changes to this package still, aren't we? Yes, and also uh, Senator Sinema, um, is opposed to a minimum wage increase uh, in a reconciliation bill. Uh, she says reconciliation bill should only be used for uh, budget-related matters. Yeah, that's and a Demo Democrat from Arizona, Kristen Cinema. Yeah, so that's that's two of them, two Democrats right there that have expressed reservations. And plus, there are probably a number of other uh, Democratic senators uh, who are yeah. uncomfortable. Uh, with the minimum wage increase, especially of this size. So, uh, so there are really, as you said, two, two points here. One point is, can a minimum wage increase get through the strict Senate rules on what can be in a reconciliation bill? And even if it can, um, will there be enough uh, Democratic support to pass it in the Senate? And then uh, we did see one of the the last major pieces of the House package take shape uh, just, just last Friday, Paul. The House Oversight and Reform Committee advanced its piece of this thing, which is $350 billion, almost entirely to help state and local governments. 
um, which and that is the other real partisan flashpoint of this package, I think, because Republicans have been unwilling to pump more money into state and local governments. They say this is just a bailout to poorly managed states and that they could use this money for reasons that have nothing to do with the pandemic, like, like shoring up uh, faltering pension funds. Uh, so they've had real pushback on that. Democrats, of course, say this money is really needed because most states are suffering huge revenue losses from all the economic shutdowns, and they're going to have to have mass layoffs of, of firefighters and police and teachers and all kinds of essential workers if we don't give them this money. But the two parties have never seen eye to eye on this issue of state and local government aid. You might remember it delayed last year's package for months. This, this was a key hang-up for months last year, and they finally passed a measure only, only last December. Um, and they got a little bit of state and local aid, not nearly as much as what Democrats wanted. And we saw this once again now where, where this piece of the package passed on a party-line vote, and, and Republicans tried to water down this state and local aid stuff and were summarily rejected. Is this going to cause any problems, you think, going forward on state and local aid? Well, I would expect it stays in the reconciliation bill. As you said, this has been a flashpoint going back months. This has been a very high priority for Democrats, and it's been something that Republicans have generally uh, strongly opposed. Um, and the, uh, the, the argument Republicans are making now is that uh, States are coming back, and some states are doing pretty well, and, uh, and, and it's not as bad for states as Democrats say. So my sense is I think they do push it through in a party-line vote, because that one, I think Democrats are pretty united on that, that piece, but it is going to make it ugly, and it's going to drive more Republican protests. Uh, and then, of course, the biggest piece of this package came from the House Ways and Means Committee. Uh, they controlled most of this, uh, well, pretty much, at least pretty much half of this package came out of the Ways and Means Committee, right? Um, and, that, and that's where we saw, um, you may be able to speak to this, Paul, but that's, that the single biggest piece that was in there was the, uh, the tax rebate checks. Right, right. And so that, those would be uh, payments of uh, $1,400 to, uh, to uh, many individuals and families, and combined with the $600 payments from the December bill, it, it would be $2,000. And the, the, the recent development there is that uh, the, the mechanics of that were changed so that um, high-earning households will, would no longer receive any of that $1,400 check. Uh, there were concerns raised by Senator Manchin from West Virginia was one of them who was concerned about very affluent households receiving this money. And so the, uh, the way it was structured was changed. So that, that's estimated to cost a little over $400 billion. Yeah, I think over $420 billion or something. It's, that, that, that's by far the single biggest piece of the whole package. Right. Uh, and there has been concern from some economists that that 
of all the things that could pump up the economy, that one doesn't do that much, <laughs> right? Because it's, it's money that, that unless you really need it, you tend to save. And so it doesn't, it doesn't get funneled into the economy very, very quickly. Whereas the unemployment benefits for jobless workers, they need that money now. And that money definitely gets spent quickly. And along with a lot of the other provisions, but the tax rebate checks, there is some question as to how much bang for the buck you get for that in terms of stimulating the economy. And that is the single most expensive feature of this whole package. Right, right. That's almost half of, uh, of the ways and means uh, 940 billion package. Yeah. So we will be looking this week for the House Budget Committee to meet and uh, assemble all these pieces. And we should say there's three additional House committees that chose not to have to advance their own own markups, uh, their own pieces of this through markups, but they'll submit their draft legislation and will be incorporated into this mega package. So it'll reflect the work of 12 committees that all have to get compiled now by the budget committee, which meets this week to uh, assemble this thing into something that we can see on the House floor, we think next week, right? Right. So that'll be a big week. A um, lot to do still. And then the Senate after that. And, and time is pressing because they're hoping to get this thing done by early March before these expanded unemployment benefits that are current law uh, run dry. So they really want to push this through quickly in the next few weeks. And we will be covering it all for you. That does it for us today. If you have any questions or comments about our podcast, we'd love to hear from you. You can always drop us an email. The address is cqpodcast, one word, at cqrollcall.com. The CQ Budget Podcast is produced by CQ Roll Call, a leader in nonpartisan political and policy news and analysis for more than 70 years. CQ Roll Call is part of Fiscal Note, a global technology and media company. Thank you all for listening. I'm David Lerman, your budget tracker. And I'm Jennifer Shutt, budget and appropriations reporter. You can always stay up to date by subscribing to the CQ Budget Newsletter. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, NPR One, or just Google the phrase CQ Budget Podcast. And we'll be back next week. <laughs>